Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's such a treat to be joined by Christina Bross from Purdue University and Abram von Ingen from Washington University in St. Louis. They're the co-editors of A History of American Puritan Literature, published in September 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Christina and Abram, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to get into this wonderful edited volume that you've helped produce. Um, But first, I wonder if you would be willing to share with us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Christina, can we start with you? Yes, thanks so much for having us. Uh, I want to start out by acknowledging that I'm I'm speaking on the traditional lands of the Bodiwadmik, Lenape, Miami, and Shawnee people who were the original caretakers of of this place. Um, So I am a professor of English, and I'm associate dean of research and creative endeavors in the Honors College here at Purdue University. Um, I've just been uh, thrilled to be uh, 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 collaborating with Abram on this this collection, and I'm excited to talk about it with uh, you all and your listeners today. Well, thank you. And it's uh, it's lovely to be here. And uh, I just wanted to start off by saying what Washington University in St. Louis is located on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Osage Nation, Missouri, and Illini Confederacy. Uh, yeah, I'm Abram Van Ingen. I, I study religion and literature. Um, I um, did my PhD at Northwestern and came up through Trinity University before starting at Washington University uh, in St. Louis in 2012. Um, and a lot of my work has taken me into 17th century Puritanism. My first book was called Sympathetic Puritans on the, on the role of sympathy and the, and the creation of community and how that shaped the literature of Puritan New England. Uh, and then my latest book has been thinking about how have these Puritans and pilgrims been remembered and remade in American culture into a kind of myth of national origins. Uh, so that's where my work has been taking me lately. And uh, that book came out last year. It's called City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So the book is A History of American Puritan Literature. It's a wonderful edited collection. And and in the introduction that you co-wrote, you mentioned that this volume was released just in time for the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing. But it also signals a turning point in, uh, in how we understand American Puritan literature. So what are some of the ways that uh, you see the landscape changing and, and how is that reflected in some of these, these wonderful essays? I think landscape might be one of the key ways to think about the way that it has changed. Uh, we used to think of a kind of, um, we, I mean, long ago when Puritan studies started in, the, in a major way in, in, in the mid 20th century, the landscape was considered the way the Puritans considered it, kind of uh, void, a wilderness that came; these Europeans came and established American culture on this on this voided, isolated wilderness plain, uh, and that, of course, is not the way we think about it now. So, the very first thing to to think about is is how the landscape of uh, of these these Puritans has changed, and so. Um, we think of the Puritans now as connected East and West. So West thinking about the, the kind of intercultural relations with, with Native Americans from the very beginning. 
Um, and there's no thinking about Puritans without thinking about Native Americans. It's just interconnected from the very beginning. But also no thinking about New England Puritans without thinking about English Puritans and, and all the developments of the English uh, church, the Church of England. So um, so this this sort of old myth of the isolated origins of America, uh, that, that's been largely exploded now and, and is, is simply not the way to approach the Puritans today. Yeah, I just follow that up by saying, when you're talking about landscape, we were really, uh, really clear that we wanted to be thinking about the landscapes plural, out of which uh, Puritan literature arises. Um, so my, my, and as, as Abram said, to think about Native American survivance as um, part and parcel of the, the creation of a, a Puritan American literature, literary tradition. Uh, my first book, uh, which is uh, published in 2004 called uh, Dry Buns and Indian Sermons was really about that kind of co-creation of uh, a literary tradition uh, with the indigenous peoples who uh, engaged with Christianity uh, as the Puritans uh, brought it to them. And then more recently, I've got a book called uh, Future History, Global Fantasies of American and British Writings. And, and again, thinking about not just a, a North American context, but British context, Atlantic context, and even global context. And so that was really important to us as well, to think about um, a really expansive uh, underpinning of American Puritan literary history. This idea of the of this the places um, really is the the way that the first part of the book is structured. It's, it's really quite expansive in the the geography. So I mean, even just skimming the chapter titles, one's left with the impression that American Puritan literature isn't at all produced in a vacuum. I'm curious, as as co editors, as you were collecting the the essays that made up this first section, what were some of the the themes that maybe surprised you? Uh, what might readers who are, have a somewhat of an interest, what might they find in this first section of the book that might challenge some of the longstanding assumptions on the origins of the, of American Puritan writing? I don't. I, I want to maybe start with something that that may or may not challenge assumptions today, but but that I really want to draw our attention to, which is uh, Drew Lopenzina's essay, Native America, and that's the only essay in the book I think that has a, a subtitle. Mm. Um, taking a step back from Plymouth Rock. And we wanted to make sure that this was a, a, the first essay in the book, I think, because it challenges both geographic and temporal uh, traditions of understanding Puritan literature. And I think Drew does this brilliant job of saying, okay, this book might be coming out you know, at the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims, but he wants to sort of rewind that occasion. And uh, he does this just lovely uh, opening extended metaphor of, of, of sipping the ink out of the pages and thinking about um, uh, what it what that encounter means and, and and then also what Native America as a place how that it, it concept itself challenges the beginnings uh, the, the th- are thinking about the beginnings of this literary tradition so I you know I, I think that that's just um, that was essential I, I, I don't think we, there was ever any question that that was going to be the first chapter in the book and uh, I think it does a lot of really important work for what comes later. Um, We talk in the introduction about this being a series of interlocked literary histories. And uh, I think that that chapter does um, really significant, important work for that that notion of interlocked histories. And those places that we start with, so Native America is first, and then British Isles by David Hall, Europe by Jan Steverman, Colonial North America by Evan Heffley, 
The Caribbean by Chris Bross, and Global America by Michelle Burnham. Uh, they're meant to indicate that the Puritan New England had all of those ties, those connections, that, that that's where you situate Puritan New England, in those kinds of contexts, in those kinds of, of related ties. And perhaps something that might challenge and surprise people is to think about the relationship, and, and we get to this in the afterward, of um, both the way Puritans thought about themselves and their place in space, but also how the world and historical realities kept impinging on that and, and forcing them to reflect and incorporate new elements. So um, Michelle Burnham's piece, for example, really goes into thinking about economic ties that are global um, that might escape or challenge uh, the sort of Puritan imaginary of what they're doing there in New England and how they're being shaped by things that they themselves are, are also at, at the same time disavowing. Uh, the same with the Caribbean. I mean, on the, on the one hand, they wanted to say, hey, we're not like that. We're not like what's happening down in the Caribbean. The Caribbean is a place of uh, of evil and sin and, 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 and terrible terribleness. And at the same time, we depend upon their products pretty intensely. Uh, and so thinking about the way that the, the imaginary and the historical reality are coming together, sometimes colliding, sometimes cooperating, that's really part of what the book is about. That's right. That essay on that, Christina, you you contributed on on the Caribbean was. I loved your quote where you said that the Puritans in New England constructed the the Caribbean as the worldly, if not devilish, shadow of their godly plantation. And uh, the image that comes to mind is is flyover country. That so often the transatlantic dimension of Puritanism has been treated as if the transatlantic is just from one point A to point B without this whole world that's connected. There's a much richer Atlantic network here than just um, you know, New England and Old England. Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, we also wanted to recognize that those of us who are focused on, say, 17th century uh, writings, uh, in recent years has been a really wonderful flowering of attention mm-hmm. to to what might have been flyover country at one point and to think about the Caribbean that, I mean, if you look at I do an exercise in my in my classes quite often where I and I'm, I'm borrowing this from Elizabeth Maddock Dillon uh, where I bring in uh, scans of maps from you know 16th 17th century and I ask my students to tell me where the center is of the map um, it, it'll be labeled America they'll be labeled America and the center is always the Caribbean uh, uh, you know mostly and, and New England is very much marginalized uh, the cover of the book has one of those maps where you can sort of see that that the Caribbean is really the geographic center of, of those those that imaginary and so uh, it, it was absolutely essential that we thought about um, the Caribbean. And I'm, I'm certainly building on colleagues who've been doing a much deeper dive than I have into some of those, some of that literature and, and have learned so much from them. Uh, that was, I think, you know, I've been, I've been uh, doing this for, for some time. And when I, when I first uh, graduated with my PhD, uh, I never thought about the Caribbean transatlantic. Just thinking about Brit- Britain and, and North America was was so new to me. Uh, and now, you know, it's just impossible to think about these literatures without considering um, these other geographic spaces. So if, if landscape and place is one way we try to challenge people's reconceptions of Puritan New England, um, you know, one of the other things that I just found interesting is as I reread all the essays and, and, and tried to write an afterward that kind of brought them together. One of the things that struck me about the whole thing was was not just the kind of resituation of Puritan New England, but also the old themes that seem not to have come up. 
(laughs) So, so Jeremiah and typology are just really not that important to modern scholars working on Puritanism. And you would think that those would be central because they have been so much a part of literary history uh, for so long, going back to Sackman Berkovich and Perry Miller and others. Um, but, but, but really modern scholars, when they look at the Puritans, are interested in other matters. And some of the stuff that we have learned about Jeremiah's and typology make it just not that unique to Puritan New England. So other people are doing Jeremiah's, other people are doing typology. I was just reading a book recently about all these revolutions in the late 18th century and all of these nations calling themselves God's chosen ones, like the Netherlands, Geneva, the Republic of Geneva, like all these places thinking of themselves. So it's, it's just actually not that unique <laughs> of a move. Uh, and um, and the other interesting thing I, I found, we, we did not give people a kind of endpoint of Puritanism. We didn't say, this is where Puritanism transitions. We'd like you to cover up to that point. And usually in the past, people sort of see Jonathan Edwards as the key figure, the key transitional figure. And most of the essays here see Cotton Mather as the key transitional figure. So Cotton Mather comes out much more sort of importantly than Jonathan Edwards throughout the book as the as the figure who's trying to bridge a divide between an old Puritan New England and something new that's coming in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've talked about the approaches that aren't servicing, but part two of this book, uh, we see, I mean, there's there's this whole variety of approaches that are available now that the, the, the landscape and the geography has been expanded. So, I, I mean, just to list uh, the, the variety that we have here, we've got uh, Lisa Gordis on theology, uh, Joanne Vanderwood on aesthetics, Tamara Harvey on gender, uh, Cassandra L. Smith on race, Jonathan Beecher Field on print culture, uh, Matthew P. Brown on ritual, uh, Meredith Marie Newman on manuscript culture, Timothy Sweet on environment, Ralph Bauer on science, Christopher Trigg on millennialism, and Bryce Traster on post-secularism. So now that we've expanded the, the horizon, um, what's coming through in the, in the new approaches now that we're not dealing with uh, just Jeremiah's and typology? I mean, one way to think about uh, a newish theme. So if, if aesthetics in an older version was interested in certain Jeremiah traditions and typology, um, you know, in Joanne Vanderwood's uh, chapter on aesthetics, what comes to the fore is this whole new interest on Puritan emotions and how the shape of language is creating the conditions of the heart necessary for a, a certain kind of experience of grace. And there's been a lot of work. I mean, of course, my own book on that. But uh, but my book is really just part of a, a a big group of scholars interested in Puritan emotions, like Baird Tipson and Alec Reary and others, uh, thinking about Puritanism as really a heart religion first and foremost, and then the the shape of the language and the the aesthetics and the literature are aimed at a certain kind of generation of emotion, but then also a kind of understanding of that generation of emotion. How how do we sort of take the human element out of the, this emotion and 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 reconceive it as a demonstration of the spirit? Um, and so you know that's that's one new way to think about the the way language is working and the way scholars are are working on Puritan language itself. I. Yeah, and and I think, Abraham, you do a nice job of sort of suggesting how that chapter aesthetics bridges um, a kind of older understanding uh, that we might have employed in, in a, in a more and a more recent one. I think the same thing is true of say theology by Lisa Gordas, 
I, I, you know, we, we, we definitely are hoping that this, this collection is useful to folks who are new to the field, but, but also those, of, those who have been, you know, sort of involved for a bit. And so we wanted to make sure that we, you know, gesture to the foundations of the field. Um, but then things have just gone, you know, exploded in so many different directions. And I think one of the things that the, the second part does is really um, push hard on the notion of what literature is, what, what is literary. And so when we have chapters on race and gender, and I would say also environment, science, we're really exp- really opening up the possibility that we're going to do close readings of all kinds of different texts. Um, and that might sound kind of kind of fundamental, uh, but, I, but I think really does the hard work of challenging what what you know what this tradition is when we have these very different kinds of texts coming into play um you know scientific treaties uh, let ephemera that would have been passed over and certainly certainly uh wouldn't have been included and may not still be included in standard anthologies that we use um in the classroom i think another way to think about that is that the imagination is at work in all different kinds of genres um and a close reading is really a way of pulling out the way the imagination is working in, a, in very different kinds of genres, very different kinds of forms. And also, of course, as, as early Americanists, you know, we're constantly interested in the places where forms are attempted and are ruptured or break down and how that reveals a sort of cognitive element at work behind the work itself. Uh, and so that, that, of course, comes through in the work. But, but just to give you an example of this, of, of kind of the rewards of close reading of, of the typically unread. Uh, I, I found Chris Trigg's chapter on millennialism super interesting because in effect, what he's saying is this was a kind of early form of, of sci-fi. <laughs> I mean, they, what they were trying to do was think through what a future, you know, eschatology, what a future heaven, what a future paradise will look like. And it, it kind of unleashed all the forces of their imagination to think that through. But at the same time, it had all of these sort of present day political payoffs and, 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 implications. So for example, what was race going to look like in heaven? Would it exist or not exist? Uh, What would gender look like in heaven? Uh, What would marriage look like in heaven? So all of these questions become super important for thinking about, well, what does that mean for how we ought to operate on earth right now? And and Chris draws out those implications in, in that chapter to think through, this is a literature very well worth reading and reading closely uh, for all of its many implications. Well, we've, we've, covered very quickly this wonderful collection of scholarship, and I feel like we've only just skimmed along the surface, but I, I imagine one group who might be listening into this conversation would be would be students who, who have um, research interests in Puritan literature or, or adjacent to them. Given what emerged out of your work on this volume, I, I'm curious what if you can uh, divine a little, what might be on the horizon? What kinds of projects do you think uh, this new history, this new approach to American Puritan literature might be signaling? That's a good question. You know, figuring out what the next turn is going to be is the trick, right? Uh, I would say, you know, a couple of resources that I might even point people to would be things like um, the early Caribbean Digital Archive, which I draw on pretty heavily in my own thinking about um, the role of the place of the Caribbean in, in Puritan literature. Um, I, I think that there are some, some digital 
projects right now emerging that really are going to allow students to try things that 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 to try things right to test things out um, to to uh, start looking for um, traces of new forms and new voices that maybe uh, as we say in the intro you know they may have been there all along but we haven't been able to see them or hear them. Um, so, so I think, I think pushing the, the temporal or the geographic bounds again, I think is important. I think we've only just begun thinking about the role of the global. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about transatlantic and I think, I think the Atlantic turn is, is real and, and lots of us are, are working in that field. There's, there's still more to be done, of course, but the global turn is just, you know, is not very old. Uh, I, I, I'm, I would hope that we're... Michelle Burnham talks in her chapter about the role of translation. Uh, I think that that, if, if folks have uh, are multilingual and can look at some of these texts in the original and then in the Puritan translations, um, that's going to be just such a rich, a rich direction to take. Um, I don't know, Abram. Those are those are a couple of my initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think for, first and foremost, the kind of uh, thinking about Puritanism as an international reformed movement. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, Jan Stevenson's chapter on the on the role of continental Europe in the shaping of Puritan New England. I mean, uh, people like Cotton Mather were in touch with, with with scholars in Germany, and and that shaped their thinking. And and it, you know, I think there's a language barrier there that prevents some people from 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 tracing out these ties and these connections. Um, but I think we're in a new place, a new position to to understand Puritan New England in relation to a much broader international reform movement beyond. Uh, its relation to the Church of England and England itself. Um, the other thing that I think actually might come out of this is without a kind of, um, without the shadow of American exceptionalism, hmm. we might actually begin to have a better understanding of distinctiveness. That is to say, um, place does matter. Place does shape people differently, one place uh, versus another. And so if we can actually think about the ties to international reformed movements, we can also begin to think about how the particular conditions of this place and space shaped Puritan New England's differently, not in a way that created some sort of national you know, future, uh, but instead kind of allows us to ask what actually is different about what they're doing uh, and because of the conditions in which they're situated uh, and, and the peoples with whom they are situated. Um, so I, I think there's actually room for that. So just to think about, for example, um, you know, work on Anne Bradstreet used to be work on Anne Bradstreet period. And I'm starting some new work on Anne Bradstreet. So this is of particular interest to me. Um, but now we think about, well, she, she was not alone, right? She was not some sort of lone female genius off in the wilderness. There were actually lots of early modern women, of course, writing, lots of uh, reformed early modern women writing. Um, and how do we think about her in relation to all the early modern women who are writing in England? Um, and that begins to help us think about, well, what is she doing? But then it also allows us to ask, well, what is she doing differently? Is she doing anything differently uh, because of her particular conditions and situation? So, so thinking about both the ties and the relations more broadly, but then also allows us to think about distinctiveness uh, in a better way, without kind of assumptions and without kind of the shadow of American exceptionalism. Avon, I think that's, I mean, that's so important. Uh, and also your comments about Anne Bradstreet lead me to, lead me to point to, to uh, Meredith Newman's chapter on manuscript culture. Um, and I think we're at this moment, too, where, um, 
you know, we're, we're thinking about how do we how do we find these materials? Uh, and and um, on the one hand, um, the digital turn is enabling many of us to, to look at manuscript materials for the first time. And that's part of Meredith Newman's point is that is that digitized manuscript materials are readily available. We can do good work with them. Um, but I also think, you know, these women, this network of women who are writing in this time period, are, you know, a, a, there are so many who exist in manuscript who don't, you know, we don't find the writings in print. And so it's another reminder that that, that kind of work um, is still important, even though sometimes it feels like with the rise of the big digital databases, um, especially for those of us lucky enough to have institutional subscriptions, um, we can do a lot of work um, right from where we are. But there's still going to be that 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 work to, to find manuscripts that are that are in different um repositories is still going to be extremely important going forward. Well, how about uh, yourselves for the, for the two of you? Are, are there any projects that you have underway that you'd like to share with us that are either related or, or on something entirely unrelated to this project that we can be looking forward to in the future? What are, what are you doing next, Chris? We haven't talked about this recently. Well, here's, I was just going to say, and I, had, I didn't know you were working on Anne Bradstreet, so I wanted yeah. to hear about that. Um, so I've got two projects ongoing. One one is kind of languishing, has been languishing because of the the, the pandemic. But I'm working with um, Cassie Smith, who has a chapter in this in this book on on uh, race. Uh, she and I have been working on um, a uh, 1648 text by Thomas Gage called The English American, and uh, we are uh, working to create a, a an open access digital edition of that text because it's it's the kind of text that that can be useful for a lot of people, we think. It's, it's anecdotal. It, 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 he, he was um, an English Catholic who uh, uh, became a, um, uh, a, a priest and traveled in, in New Spain for 12 years and brought, helped to bring chocolate to England. Um, uh, just to give that little pitch, and and, and um, we've both we both uh, had written about him independently, and then when we read each other's chapters, we decided that that we would work together on the on the text, and so that's kind of a slow roll project. Uh, and then I also have a um, I've been working with um, Laura Stevens and um, Marie Bosley Taylor on a, a, a critical edition of um, John Eliot's Indian Dialogues and uh, the Elliot Track Tears of Repentance. And we have a contract uh, with Broadview for that. That's um, awesome. Again, yeah, no, we're pretty excited about it. It's been something we've been wanting to do for, for a while. There is there is a, a an edition of Dialogues, but it's um, it's uh, some years old now, and, and, uh, uh, and the uh, original editors are happy to have us take it to the next steps. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, what I think for me... Uh, yeah, so, uh, well, I love poetry, and I love close reading poetry. I have a, a, a podcast called Poetry for All that, that basically, that's what we do. One poem each week, and we close read it and explain how it works um, and why it's great. And I love Anne Bradstreet's poetry. And, I, and when I teach Anne Bradstreet's poetry, I get really wonderful responses from students who still find it relevant, still find it moving, still find it um, speaks to them. And so... That sort of generated a project where I wanted to do uh, to think through her poetry one by one and think about these poems and how they're working. Uh, but I also wanted to kind of situate them in a broad cultural biography of her times, her movement, her world, her work. Uh, think about her in relation to all these early modern women writers uh, abroad um, and and just kind of resituate what she's doing and how she's doing it with all that we have learned over the past 30 years. The last biography of Anne Bradstreet was about 30 years ago. 
the last scholarly biography. And we have learned a ton about early modern women's writings since then. And so what is that shift? How does that change our views of what she's doing and how she's going about it? Uh, that's, that's the sort of basic question of the project. But uh, at the end, I, I sort of hope for a cultural biography of Anne Bradstreet that will then lead into a, a sort of careful study of her, her poetry. Well, I can't wait until all of those projects are ready to. Uh, <laughs> to you might have, need to wait a while. <laughs> yeah, to have uh, and to read. So I'm, I'm very excited to to continue following the development of those. Both Chris and I would just love the chance to thank all of our amazing contributors who are amazing and who are themselves, uh, you know, leading edge scholars on new Puritan studies in the field in literary history. Um, and this book is really nothing without them. Of course, it's nothing without them. It is, it is what they have uh, written, collected together. But, but the collection of them is more than the sum of the parts. And, and they are each um, extraordinary scholars in their own right. Yeah, absolutely. I think these, these are the people who've taught me so much about, uh, about the field and uh, on whom I rely uh, every, time I, every time I turn to, to 17th and 18th century. And uh, their willingness to, to, to work hard on this project during what was a very difficult yeah. time is especially something I, wanted, I want to call out. This was, uh, we, were, we were really grateful for their hard work. Uh, over the last couple we chose years. each one of them because each one of them has written a book or an article or something or more than that uh, that really stunned us and changed us as scholars uh, and as each one said yes Absolutely. we were kind of like delighted <laughs> every time we're like no way yes yeah. uh, so anyway we're, we're very grateful to all of our contributors um, you've both been so generous with your time thank you so much for coming to talk with us about this great project from Cambridge University Press a History of American Puritan Literature. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can search our catalog of over 10,000 interviews. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.